Hi, this is Moby, and welcome to episode five of Moby Pod. So, a couple of weeks ago, first of all, hi, Lindsay. Hi, Moby. And hi, Bagel. Hi, Moby. A couple of weeks ago, we got an email from a woman. Michelle. Michelle. Rebel Wheels, NYC. And she asked us about creativity and our creative process. And this is an ongoing conversation because obviously creativity can be a source of joy, it can be a source of anxiety, it can be a source of comfort, it can be a source of terror. Like everyone has, myself included, has very complicated relationships with creativity. And so, Lindsay and I thought we would invite our friend Lisa Edelstein to come in and talk about her creative process because she has a really fascinating creative autobiography. She's done things that are so cool and she's managed to exist in so many spaces. So we thought she would just be the most perfect person to come on and talk about creativity because she's never painted herself into a corner. (laughs) And you, most people would know Lisa from, she's been on television in so many different things from Seinfeld to the West Wing to what was that new one? Oh, the Kaminsky method. And she was on house for like seven years. And I think curb your enthusiasm. So many things. Like ER, Frasier, just shoot me without a trace, judging Amy, what women want, keeping the faith. Goes like you, the list goes on and on. And so it would be interesting to just sit down and talk with her about acting, but she's also an incredible painter. And she's expressed herself in a lot of other different creative ways. So without further ado, um, why, Lindsay, why don't you and Bagel and I invite our friend Lisa Edelstein to come in and talk to us so we can ask her why she's such a creative genius. Okay, so to Lisa, thank you for coming um, to MobyPod to talk to us about creativity and painting. Um, I'm right now saying thank you and introducing you because Lindsay is otherwise occupied ordering food. I'm just making sure we have lunch. Okay, so that's why I say, I mean, I sound stilted all the time. Moby's in a food panic. Yeah, I'm in a little bit of a food panic, so I'm distracted. Like, am I ever going to eat again? It's a sandwich (laughs) panic, but I swear it'll be here by one o'clock. Okay, so now I'm relaxed. I mean, insofar as (laughs) I can ever be relaxed. Um, Thanks so much for coming and hanging out with us, Lisa. We've been, Moby and I have talked so many times about how impressed we are with the fact that we thought you were just this incredible, legendary actor friend (laughs) who also throws really good dinner parties. But seeing you flourish as a painter has been so amazing to watch and we had this concept of creativity and what it means to us and we were thinking of who we should talk to about their creative life and we were like oh my gosh it has to be Lisa just because you've had this incredible journey in so many creative avenues. Ultimately I want to I'm just personally really curious about your subject matter Mm. because it's always it's the first question I always ask myself when I go to a gallery or see someone's work I'm like why this like if you're a photographer less so because you're going out into the world and you're documenting things that are already there but painting it's a tabula rasa literally it's a blank can it's a blank slate a blank canvas and so I don't that's me jumping the gun a little bit 
Well, I definitely want to talk so much about your painting, but I also, I think that your background and all the different things that you've done that have gotten you to where you are now as an artist are really fascinating too. And I think sets the stage for this medium that you're focusing on or right now, that we're yeah. focusing on in the moment. Yeah. And also, I'm just really curious about, you're from New Jersey. Uh-huh. Well, Boston originally. Boston. Born in Boston, but it doesn't count. I okay. was I was out of there by, and then moved to Brooklyn and then to New Jersey. Can't claim, can't claim Brooklyn either because it wasn't <laughs> long enough. Loved <laughs> um, it though. But then, so you're in New Jersey. You went to Tisch when you graduated high school mm-hmm. for acting. Mm-hmm. And then you kind of entered into this world of like the club kid well, simultaneous culture while you were Tish. in school. Yeah. Which we were talking about how artistic that world was and how a person who doesn't have a truly creative mind wouldn't flourish in a place like that. And you really did. So I guess I wanted to know about A, how you entered into that world and how your creativity lent itself to how the legend you became in that <laughs> in that realm. Um, I found that world by accident. Well, I mean, I had been clubbing since I was 14, but not in a place that was interesting or cool, mostly <laughs> like gross middle-aged men doing cocaine and trying to pick up on 14-year-olds. Sure. But uh, when I went to NYU, I met James Clark, who became Jane St. James, and he had been obsessed with this underground world. Uh, and he had been studying like the factory and Warhol and that whole microcosm that existed in New York at the time, which really doesn't exist anywhere anymore because of the internet, there's no real microcosm. So he um, wanted a partner and I just loved him immediately. And he taught me everything he knew about who was who in that world. And then we sort of schemed our way into it. <laughs> and, and just for context, so what year is this? This is 1984. Okay. So again, like I had been to Danceteria, I had been to the tail end of studio, I'd been to some other random discotheques. But now we're like, now it's the real world that he's sort of taking me into. And the things that he had planned out were exercises like you walk into a really crowded club and then he and I would go in the opposite direction and we'd ask everybody if they knew where the other one was. So I'd be saying, do you know where James St. James is? Do you know where James St. James is? And he would be saying, do you know where Lisa is? And we'd go all the way around this really crowded room until we got, and nobody knew us. So nobody would know who the other person was. So we'd get to the other side of the room and then we'd walk around together saying, we found each other. (laughs) And that was James's plan on getting everybody to know our names. Mm -hmm. So in a way, he was like an Instagram influencer before there was the internet. Like it was all about sort of gaming this world that we that he wanted to be a part of. Becoming a recognizable face in the scene where, yeah. Right. So so we would be part of this world just because we demanded the right to be a part of this world. Right. Um, meanwhile, the world itself was like incredibly exciting. Having grown up in a very conservative town, mm-hmm. it was like a relief to be around people who were weird and who didn't express themselves in ways that were acceptable to the more conservative world. And um, I wanted to see and know and do everything. And so for me, it was just incredibly exciting. And you were 16? No, at that point, I'm 18. I started going out when I was 14. 
what I was interested in was these other worlds. It was subcultures. I, yeah, I mean, was, these subcultures that I knew nothing about mm-hmm. that were a relief because yeah. there had to be something because I didn't fit in where I was. Mm-hmm. So there had to be something. So it, became, it began and, this quest of subculture. And I don't know if your experience was, I mean, because we, we were about we're roughly the same age. Yeah. I'm a little bit older. We started going to New York at the same time. Yeah. Um, I went to New York to go to punk rock shows. Yeah. And then it ended up in Danceteria, the Mud Club, exactly. et cetera. Hearing you describe it, it reminds me there's almost a video game Lord of the Rings aspect. It's like you'd look at Manhattan from New Jersey or from Connecticut and you'd be like, okay, that's the Dark Empire. Yeah. And I'm going to go in there and there's this network of underground tunnels. And the sad thing is, I just don't know if that exists anymore, as you were saying. You know what? Honestly, it's not for us to know because it's a young person's journey. But I don't think it, I mean, it exists on the internet. They find each other that way, but it's not in real life. You don't Um, have to go outside to find your community anymore. I think that these places You don't have exist. to master public transportation exactly. the way we did back then. It's like, okay, when's the last And also just like to... being in the know. I mean, you found out about things because somebody handed you a slip of paper. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you did, we didn't even have, we didn't even have uh, uh, message machines, whatever they were called. Fax machines. <laughs> yeah. We couldn't, you couldn't leave voicemails yet at oh, that yeah. point in time. For James, it was like a thing. And for me, it was just, so exciting. And did you, when you were going out, was your goal just to meet people or was there, were you trying to build some sort of... Well, we were definitely, I mean, I always wanted to be an actress. So Mm -hmm. I was definitely trying to leave obscurity and find a way to enter the world at large. Mm -hmm. So for sure, that was part of it. But what I learned in that process when I got very famous for no reason is that if you don't have something to back it up, it's not a pleasant experience. Like fame Mm -hmm. is not a goal. But what James's plan was, which really actually was right, which is that if you can get a name for yourself, then you can sidestep and show people what you can do. The problem is people don't really want you to sidestep. When you get celebrity for no reason, they just want to kill you. (laughs) Either either like they are stalking you and actually want to kill you or rape you, (laughs) or they just want to destroy you because it's not, there's something that's the only reason for your celebrity. It's like an idol worship. You you build Mm -hmm. the idol to burn it down. And so you have to, it's a very painful process to then reclaim your name and your reputation. And that is what I had to do. Yeah. And you did it. And I think a lot of people don't figure out how to do the sidestep. Right. I'm very, very grateful for that. Yeah. And also, I think just to put a little context in this, so so you're 18 years old, you move from Wayne, New Jersey, mm-hmm. to New York to go to Tisch. You and James St. Now James St. James. Then just for first become, James Clark. Yeah. You become celebutants. Yes. Which was how Newsweek described James yeah. first. It yeah. was you know the the people who were like in details and paper before paper. Which one be, details became details. Yeah. yeah. So like I mean that was the goal. It's like the people who were on the cover of paper. The people who are on the cover of details. I was like yeah. these are the most famous people in the world. The truth is. They're famous between like Astor Place and 23rd Street. Right, like, like <laughs> an Edie Sedgwick. Um, well, Edie, I think, broke more barriers than that because that Warhol scene factory, yeah. I think, was more famous. But then you, very uniquely, you became an MTV star. 
Yes. Yes. So first I wrote my musical. Yeah. First I, that's how I got out of the quandary that I was in. I wrote a musical about the AIDS crisis. So a lot of my friends were- Positive. Positive me. Yeah. yeah. So a lot of my friends were dying and the, Reagan wasn't saying the word AIDS and like, wow. you know, yeah. I I'd volunteered for gay men's health crisis and took a 27 hour course just to learn about the disease. And people were pulling me into bathrooms and clubs, asking me if they were dying, like showing me sore. Oh on their God. arms or in their mouth and like and I was just a kid who took a 27 hour workshop yeah um, so and there was, was a lot so of terrifying fear because there was no science around it, it was at that nothing. point like people were I mean this was even maybe before interferon AZT before. AZT I think it just started when I when I wrote this musical um, yeah. so there was just panic Panic, it was and, panic and the and, fear that like if you went to a public bathroom you were going to get AIDS if you like yeah it was panic or and if you fury. drank from the same cup or like I mean I like, think by then we knew we in the community knew that that was not how you got AIDS but outside of that community there was so much fear around mm -hmm. it that they were just abandoning sick people mm -hmm. um, families were abandoning their loved ones who were ill and and so people were left penniless and no ability to get whatever care there was available for them. So my volunteer work involved just going to the hospitals and visiting people that no one would go see. God. Um, and, and the sickest people, I mean, yeah, it's actually, it's, it's actually, I get choked up thinking about what it was like then. It, like people, it was, it was real And it bad. was fast. Like you got diagnosed and died quickly and painfully because mm. you probably had a lot of symptoms building up to it and you didn't know what it was. Yeah. Um, people were also afraid to get tested for it because you could lose your insurance if you had any, if they yeah. even knew you got tested they for it. They would AIDS. drop you from your insurance? And even if, if you just got tested. So you had to get <gasps> tested anonymously and it would take like two to three weeks to get your results. Yeah, those two to three weeks were so oh intense. Yeah, and like God. if you had the flu, you know what I mean? You thought, oh, this is it. Like were, whatever you had. Yeah. And, and the really, just like, cause a friend of mine was an AIDS researcher and she said, especially in the mid to late 80s, there were a lot of false positives. Like people who had certain types no. of hepatitis, people mm -hmm. who even had like eaten bad shellfish would be given a false positive and then given AZT and interferon, which would kill them. Yeah. So a oh lot, my so, God. So there were, it, and there I mean, were some people tragic, who were positive but, and never, and didn't get sick for 30 more years. <gasps> like it was, there were so many different yeah. strains of the virus mm -hmm. going around that you, so I had friends who chose not to do anything when they test positive and some of them were right because they lived a very long time before they ever got sick. Yeah. Before they developed the AIDS cocktail, the drugs, they were I mean, really I, brutal. I, I'm not a scientist, but the drugs were definitely not helping. Like they no. were taking sick people and making them quite a lot maybe, sicker. Maybe they lived a little longer. Some people survived AZT and lived to yeah. this day. You know who uh, who did that was um, the guy who was on with Tammy Faye Baker. He very famously was dying at the time. Tammy Faye oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, did an interview with him. I just saw a story. I was weeping because he's still alive and he was on AZT at the time and he thought he was going to die. Whoa. But so. but anyway, everybody was, was, all these people were dying and and it was so strange what was happening in the world. And so I was in a class with Elizabeth Suedos, and our challenge was to write a politically satirical song. And I wrote a song called Government A-OK'd Sex about the sodomy laws. And then she was like really encouraging, loved my song, told me to keep going. And then I ended up writing this musical and leaving school and producing this musical instead. Where did you do it? At this place called La Mama, which is mm, a, know, a really wonderful theater. Mm -hmm. And it started a lot of careers. Yeah. And because I had been famous in this other world, they knew 
I could at least get an audience for a workshop. Mm-hmm. So they gave me a workshop weekend in their little black box. And then Ellen gave me a full production the year Was a La year Mama later. on Rivington? No, where? No, Fourth. Fourth, that's okay. Yep. Yeah. So that was amazing. And so I raised money for it. I sang and danced in people's living rooms and raised money. And, and then the theater matched the funds that I raised. So I had like $12,000 to do my show. $12,000 in the late 80s. That's like a billion dollars. That's a lot of singing and dancing in people's living rooms. Yeah. 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 It was really, it was beautiful. And then I did MTV and MTV was just this super dumb show, but I got a paycheck. It was called Awake on the Wild Side. It was um, really bad morning show. We were supposed to be the Regis and Kathy Lee of MTV and we really weren't. (laughs) Um, But the best part about it was that I, I did a segment called Lisa's World. And so I started bringing in people from the club scene that I knew, strange performers, Mm -hmm. performance artists, and just interviewed them in character on so I gave them a national audience. Yeah. Um, so that was that was who the only was, thing I remember. Do you remember who were some him. of the people you interviewed? Um I remember John Kelly. He mm-hmm. was a, an amazing performance artist. Uh I cannot remember who else. I think I had some of the club kids on. I think I had James and Patrick on. I can't remember. Honestly, that we, whole time was like, I called it three hours a day of national humiliation, five days a week. Oh, my God. <laughs> so you you wouldn't say you loved it, but it was... No, I hated it. Yeah. I hated it. And also, <laughs> I never wanted to be a host. And yeah. also... I was playing Lisa E, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so then they had me play Lisa E on TV and I didn't want to be stuck in that mode. So I really wanted to graduate from all of that. And so then I, when I, when that show was done, I went to LA and I started working in earnest as an actress. You have this amazing life in New York and kind of like work your way through the system. You'd go to NYU and then you're in LA. And I think many of us will know so much of your work that you managed to accomplish, which is also not an easy no, not thing easy. to do, <laughs> regardless of what you came from. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Well, I had to sort of leave that behind. Yeah. In some ways, when talking to representation, if I had to switch representation, I had a great backstory. But in terms of actually getting work, I had to leave that behind and not make it known that that was me. Yeah. So I had to kind of recover from that story, but I was still happy to have that story. But you had something to back up this new story, which was you were doing really well in these auditions and people were right, like, exactly. okay, she can act. I had to prove myself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you have all of these incredible years of work Thank where you. people grow to love you. And now you're painting. So all through all of that, like as a child, I always was drawing. I was always doing magic marker stuff. Mm-hmm. In high school, I did art class. So I made a few paintings. Um, my parents still have them hanging. <laughs> and, and art and creation was always something that was what I did in my alone time. Mm-hmm. So, And I went through different phases. In New York, I had this really obsessive thing where I was I was grabbing frame picture frames, ornate picture frames that people threw away and then reconstructing them with um, found objects like doll heads and beads and anything that I hmm. could find. So I had a whole box of that stuff and I would just glue them obsessively. Um, I did a lot of drawing and at some point I was sewing. So I was always found I was healthier if I was busy doing other things in between working as an actress in particular. And there's a lot of time when you're in between. And those moments where I wasn't doing that stuff, then it would, I would suffer for it. Mm -hmm. So when the pandemic hit, and I had already done like 10 jigsaw puzzles and watched (laughs) 
all the zombie movies and and apocalypse movies and it has only it was only like two weeks into lockdown i just thought i better do better than that so Mm -hmm. i decided to color because i missed magic markers and i started coloring in adult coloring books and then i realized i hated all the images so then i decided to make my own coloring book and that's why i started using family photos so i was initially because i was using magic marker i was trying to find pictures that would be fun to color in and then i would create the drawing and blow it up and color it in and then I realized I can do more than that. So then I started to make them bigger and color them in with magic markers. And then I started running out of ink. So then I started using the ink from the magic markers instead of the markers. I would paint with them, which is what you have. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my husband, who's an amazing painter, Robert Russell, he was like, you should just be painting. Yeah, as, so, opposed to, yeah. as opposed why to cracking you, open magic why markers. Why are you struggling yeah. like this? So then I, um, I decided to try watercolor because it was good on paper. Paper and it moved in a similar way to ink, mm-hmm. at least the way I use it. And so my mom's neighbor knows how to use watercolor. So she taught me like actually how to use watercolor because I didn't know how to mix colors with watercolor, which is different from what Robert does with oil painting, which is like you scoop a bunch of oil and then you use a spatula knife and you mix things. Um, watercolor, you like take a little watercolor, put it on a palette, take the other color, put it on the palette, mix it on the palette. So it's just like learning the technical stuff. Of, mm-hmm. um, so I had about a 20 minute lesson and then I just mm-hmm. went to town. Um, <laughs> so now that we're talking about painting, yeah, the whole reason Lindsay and I wanted to do this episode about creativity is that she and I, and we talked about this with Robert as well, like Lindsay and I have very different relationships to creativity. Like I, similar to you, from an early age have always found like comfort and refuge in creativity. Like the non-creative world is terrifying to me. Whereas Lindsay and a lot of our friends find creative expression to be incredibly daunting. And we've had a lot of people write to us asking about creativity because my experience is like the majority of people on the planet want to be creative and they have these blocks. Mm. So two questions around that. One, when did you first start expressing yourself creatively and was your family encouraging? Um, I'm the third child. My and my brother was a lot to handle. So I think uh, just surviving, I had to express myself creatively. <laughs> and I think my parents were too exhausted to not support that. I, I think they hoped I would grow out of certain things, like mm-hmm. wanting to be an actress. But it's funny, there weren't always... It's not my whole creative body that I've always felt comfortable sharing with other people. So acting, performing, dancing, all that stuff was outward. Drawing, painting, uh, any of that kind of stuff, that was inward. Like at one point in my life, I made all these necklaces and the store wanted to sell them. And halfway to the store in New York, I turned around and went home and gave them all away because I couldn't handle failing at that mode of expression in the way that I could handle for whatever reason, as an actor, um, you succeed sometimes, you fail sometimes, you have to be able to manage all that. So for me, there has never been a time when I wasn't trying to create something in some way, but not all of it was for other people. Hmm. And so, so your parents almost created sort of like a neutral environment for you. like Because I know a lot of people, like friends of ours, people we know, were told at an early age by their parents. And Lindsay, I don't know what your experience was, but like parents were not encouraging, they were actively discouraging. My parents were not like that. I just think that they never thought of it as something you could do as a life. 
One thing I wanted to say is, as we all know, there are a lot of creative people who express themselves in different media. And sometimes it's great. Sometimes it's not like I'm certainly not going to name names, but like there's definitely a tradition of like musicians trying to be painters. And sometimes it's not so great. <laughs> you know, um, when I heard that you were painting and I was knew I was going over to your house to see and I was going to see some of your paintings. I had a moment of like, uh-oh, is this kind of like when someone asks you to like read their poetry and like you're like, okay, how do I prepare myself to be polite because I'm going to hate this and I have to be nice? But then I saw your paintings and I was raised by artists. You know, my mom was a painter, a very accomplished oil painter. My grandmother was a watercolor painter. My uncle's a sculptor. My other uncle's a photographer. Wow. So I grew up in like a world of visual art and I saw your painting and I was like, oh, these are really good, which is why I wanted to own one. And I'm, it's not a slight against you that I wasn't expecting them to be good, but it was a really nice surprise to, like, to walk into your studio and be like, oh, these are great. And they're not dilettantish. Like, they're serious and incredibly well executed. Thank you. question okay for you which is so you go from making these paintings in your house and now you've done some very well received shows how did you get from doing them in your house to the point where you are now a noted painter <laughs> well that's my husband like he he pushed me to first of all go from the little coloring book I was making to making bigger <laughs> paintings bigger 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 um, because he has a really wonderful career people come over to see his work and he would just say hey you should go see what Lisa's doing in her room so I started having these accidental studio visits mm -hmm. where I you know literally I made 35 paintings during COVID so I had piles of images so I felt a little bit good I felt um, like a crazy yeah. person where it'd be like just pulling out these massive drawings and paintings that I couldn't hold in one hand so he started doing that and people who are really great artists also started noticing it and mm -hmm. being very excited about it and they started talking about it and then I got interest from the gallery in New York and uh, that's how it sort of unfolded I think I had the advantage of being very close to somebody who was already in the art world. Mm -hmm. um, and thankfully, the work that I was doing was work that nobody laughed at. Because <laughs> when you're an actor and you do anything else, as what we were just talking yeah. about before, the fear is that you can't overcome the actor part. And when you had the show in New York... Was your anxiety different, like qualitatively or quantitatively different than the anxiety you've had around acting or other creative things you've done? The funny thing is my opening just happened to coincide with this documentary that's being made about the club scene. And they were doing, they were focusing on the artists that came out of that time period because it was, you know, Basquiat, Keith Haring, Kenny Scharf, um, a lot of really amazing performers. I mean, it was a really powerful time for creatives. Mm -hmm. So I had done an interview with them during COVID when they were trying to put their documentary together. And then when they found out I was having this show of my paintings, they got very excited and like, well, now you're one of the artists that also came out at this time period. So they were shooting a documentary at my opening. So I had the double uh, stress of having an art opening and also having a documentary film crew film my art opening. And I, you know, for all I knew, I mean, once I had a birthday party and 75 people said they were coming and it was me and my gardener and my parents. 
<laughs> for like two hours because everybody was two hours late. And that two hours was really awful. Yeah. <laughs> so I didn't know what my opening was going to be like. So it was more stressful. Just I, I kept the stress to the opening night and not to the career at large. I think by the time we had the opening, I'd already had some write-ups about the work and they were very positive. And so I wasn't afraid anymore of being an actor who did some paintings. Mm-hmm. I was an actor and also a painter. You're right. Honestly, in my mind, you're sort of like a painter who acts. Oh, <laughs> you know? I love it. Okay, so I'm looking at my list of stuff I wanted to go over because I wrote myself some notes because I am a fancy professional podcast nice. interviewer, mm-hmm. as you are, Lindsay, as well. Um, so one thing that I would like to ask both of you is creative blocks. For a lot of people who want to express themselves creatively, obviously a huge block are blocks, you know, and some people can never get past them. Yeah. And I'm just wondering, Lisa and also Lindsay, if you guys have like what sort of blocks you encounter, what's the mindset, like what's the self-talk around the blocks and how how you get past them? You know, in the last couple of years, what's been great is that I've also sold a few scripts. And so I feel like a one-woman band sometimes in my room where I'm able to shift modes of creativity all in one day. As one gets more frustrating, I can just move on to another. And I think that that's a really interesting trick. If you have other things you like to do that exercise your creative brain that aren't result-oriented necessarily um, to allow more playtime mm-hmm. for yourself. Because I think we get so caught up in the career around the creativity that it can cause a big block. And so if you allow yourself the playtime that got you there to begin with, and if that, that means moving on to something that's completely outside of what you do for a living, but it, it just makes it more fun again, um, I think that's a really great exercise. So to sort of not stop the momentum, but just sort of transfer it somewhere else. Well, there is no momentum if you have a block, mm-hmm. right? You're mm-hmm. you're already the momentum has already ceased. So in trying to refind it, the, I I I guess the idea, the like more esoteric idea, would be that it the river doesn't stop. You've just somehow like fallen onto the bank, and so to get back in, you have to. You have to trick yourself, and sometimes that means going down a different path altogether and allowing yourself to have fun with it. And that might help you move back into that mode of being that you're in when you're Mm -hmm. having fun creating. I think losing the fun. Oh, sorry. I was just going to ask you if you have thoughts or questions, but you were saying that you had thoughts, and I interrupted you. (laughs) (laughs) So clearly, what I said earlier about being a great professional podcast interviewer, I've just proven that that's (laughs) wrong. So, yeah. Um, When you were talking about fun, I think that where when I lose the thread of creativity and when my momentum stops is when I lose the thread of the fun. Yeah. Because I think for me at least, and maybe this is true for other people, but I sometimes will get caught up in the what's the point of me doing this? Yeah. And then that thought triggers just a downward spiral of slowing down the fun and getting into like, and why would I do anything? And why do I even have time for art? Have I done my taxes? Like this very kind of the most unfun spiral. (laughs) Yeah. Which completely stops any momentum that I had when I get into the world of the logical when but when I'm in the world of the fun and making it feel light. 
Right, is when the momentum starts to churn itself back up. And yeah, and allowing learning. Mm-hmm. Allowing learning is a big thing. Mm-hmm. Like now that I've finished that show and I've made a bunch more paintings, but I'm sort of running out of the original resource material, you know, but but I'm still learning. I'm learning oil painting. So I'm having to remember that I am still actually very much learning about painting. And sometimes I can just make things to see if I can. Um, And that's really, yeah, it's challenging once the outside pressure starts coming in and it's no longer just an inner experience. It changes it a lot. Yeah, yeah. I do. I wonder what you think about this, because in the pandemic, I also began painting, but very poorly. (laughs) I don't, I was very bad at it. Um, But I was talking. You did paint some good Marge Simpsons. I painted Marge Simpson. I will say that was (laughs) some of my best work. I painted Marge Simpson high on drugs. And it was maybe the best thing I ever did. Um, Also, Beavis and Butthead, I'm really good at. (laughs) Painted those guys. Um, So going back to our earlier conversation about the artist has a tabula rasa. (laughs) And what do they choose to bring into the world? It's like you, Lisa, do these very psychological sort of like cultural zeitgeist inspired paintings and <laughs> Lindsay paints Marge Simpson on drugs. Well, <laughs> I mean, what I paint is an extension of what I've been doing, which is mm-hmm. very narrative, right? I have a narrative brain. I like stories. So I like images that tell stories. So it was a, it was a straight line. So maybe she's more about the Simpsons. And I'm, I'm not criticizing. I mean, I, 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 <laughs> I, I, I love your Marge Simpson on drugs paintings. It was memorable to you, yeah. clearly. But what I was going to say is... I heard from other painters that I was telling, like, I'm painting Beavis. They would be like, well, are you taking classes? Are you learning? And I was like, eh, I'm just going to express. I'm just doing this to express my feelings about, you know, mid-90s cartoon (laughs) obsessions of mine. But there were a lot of people that were like, if you're not going to, like, go through the courses and learn how to do it and learn the theory and learn all of it, then there's no point in doing it. No, but that's no fun. But that, that's what I said. I was like, I'm having fun doing my silly stuff you that's just for myself. You have fun doing your silly stuff. I didn't do any of that. Yeah. I, mean, I, mean, I mean, craft is great, but like the 20th century has gone to either, I mean, pre-20th century, the focus was all craft. You know, right. You had to be, a f- like if you're doing figurative work, which pretty much only exists, you know, that's all there was. But you still had to be interested in it and you still yeah. it still had to be fun to you and engaging. So like, I think that has to be where you start mm-hmm. is like, oh, I really like doing this. And then you're like, hey, how come I can't? can't get this color and then you go you type in something on the internet and somebody's got a video and they show you how to mix that color and then you think oh that's really interesting and then mm-hmm. you watch their whole their whole course and you learn something about underpainting and oil painting right. which is something I learned by watching something on the internet and it's yeah. like then I walk away from that because that's boring I don't want to be in class and then I practice some more because right. that's fun mm-hmm. um, so I don't know I don't think I, I think the joy has to come before the class. Yeah. I also think there's some, like, sometimes it helps to know how to do the thing that you see in your brain that you don't know how to get out on a piece of paper. Yeah. And that's and when it, you go and you watch you the video. Figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. But I think, you know, back in the time period you're talking about, people learned by working for the great artists. They mm-hmm. they worked in their studios. They painted for them. They learned the tricks of the trade that were this trade secrets of whatever mm-hmm. painting house they were working at. And like, but the joys of painting and the, the ability to see that way is what got them there to begin with. Yeah, I mean, it, it, whether it's music, whether it's painting is like, if something is too rigid and dogmatic, it's not interesting. It's not interesting mm-hmm. 
for the artist. It's not interesting for the person listening or watching. But if something is just freeform mess, I mean, Lisa, I'm sure we've all experienced that, but especially New York in the 80s, there was a <laughs> lot of undisciplined freeform mess. Like, yeah. you'd go to a gallery and there'd be like a naked guy masturbating in the corner while like some chicken bones and old milk bottles were scattered around him. You're like, okay, <laughs> that's interesting, but like maybe a little bit of craft would have gone, served itself well. But then at the same time, Lindsay, what you're describing, like people who are like only about formulaic perfect draftsmanship right. and representation, like that's tedious too. It's like finding the unless balance Unless you love between, that. Yeah. Unless you love yeah, that. that's and really true. Because there are really, really amazing painters that aren't amazing artists. They're not interesting artists, but they're incredible at taking what they see and putting it in paint These technical form. skills. Yeah, like, and and that all has validity. It's different different worlds. It, it can, it all exists at the same time. And you can learn from those people, but you don't have to be those people. Right. And when you can combine the two, you know, I mean, you think of like, I mean, the greatest artists, the greatest musicians, the greatest everyone, it's like finding, like having the background in craft, having studied whatever your form of creative discipline is, but then combining it with that spirit of creativity and experimentation, you know, the greatest photographers, the greatest artists. I mean, even Marcel Duchamp, he was a great painter before he kind of threw it all away to be experimental. Right. But his experimentation was informed by his you know, for, more formal education. Robert's formal had a very formal education and no one ever taught him how to paint at mm-hmm. either school. They were never teaching actual painting. It was all theory. It was all mm-hmm. theory. Yeah. So it was all about what is the conversation that you're in within the world and then it was up to you to learn how to paint. I mean, I, there were very few painters in the program. A friend of mine, I forget, was it either the film school at NYU or somewhere where basically for the first three years, a friend of mine was like, not allowed to touch a camera. It was like discussion of film theory. And I was like, you know, cameras are fun. Like just right. take a camera and go out and start shooting stuff, see what happens. Like, Right. But back in those days, it was only film cameras and it was very hard to make your yeah. own movies because it's hard to get the equipment. But yeah, it is. It's also, and I could not have done that kind of education. I am not good sitting in class. <laughs> I can't, I hate listening to lectures. Even watching that one class, just figure out how to do an underpainting. <laughs> I'm like at home and I'm yeah. like, oh, yeah, don't do well. I need to be doing something. Yeah. Okay. So I have a question Yeah. that I wanted to, it was the, the first question I wanted to ask, but um, it would have been weird if we hadn't sort of talked about a degree of context beforehand is right. the painting that I showed Lindsay yesterday. Mm-hmm. The one, the Lisa Edelstein that is in my possession <laughs> is, I mean, you know it because you painted yeah. it, but I'm going to describe it to our listening audience. So there are four people in the painting. Mm-hmm. It's a, a mom in a pink house dress. And in the background, there's a little stove. And then there's a kid in the foreground. And then there's a young, what we assume is a girl in a, a dress. And then there's a, a fan blowing on them making me assume it might probably be summertime. And then there's a little container of Ajax. And then there is a yellow tub filled with water and a child face down <laughs> in the tub of water. A and baby, not just a child, a, baby. a small, small an infant and, with and a full head of hair. A newborn infant. And so I <laughs> am... You! Uh, um, that's you? That's me. Okay, so good. So I that, survived. I survived. That actually makes it this a little easier to talk about because <laughs> the picture, when I first looked at it, I was like, oh my God, this is the <laughs> darkest painting I've ever seen. It's 
a mom drowning a baby <laughs> in front of in her a, other children. In front of the other children in a tub full of Ajax water. <laughs> and my so but I was like, I'm if I bring that up, like, are we going to get in trouble? Like, are we, like, is this going to be the <laughs> it's part? It's not infanticide. That... Okay, so good. So you were the child. So yeah, like, so I made it. Clearly you survived. <laughs> I made it. By the way, some of my, I don't know, were you ever washed in a tub like that? I don't know. I oh. think I was washed in a sink at some point. Because some of my early pictures, like me in the basement of the apartment in Harlem where I, I lived when I was really young, my mom washing me in a tub while a bunch of animals looked on. But there were like no not pictures. Not a bathtub, like a... Like, like a little rubber, rubber, like a Rubbermaid plastic, plastic tub, like yeah. this one in yeah. the painting. So when you painted this, were you aware that the viewer might interpret it as a, as infanticide? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I love pictures that leave question marks. Um, I love oh, I love photos. We don't have photos like this anymore because we're also used to being photographed. We're really camera savvy. We're really aware that it could end up on the internet forever. Mm -hmm. So it's really hard to capture real life in the way we remember it and not in the way we wish we remembered it. So we're constantly filtering and retelling our stories nowadays with cameras. And back then, there were a lot of accidental photographs that you kept because you paid for it. It took a long time to get it developed, came in an envelope, came with all the negatives. And even if you didn't like it, you would still keep it in the envelope. Oh, it was in a magic. Box I mean, it's like you had spent a lot of time and money making those photos, like the snapshots on the Instamatic. Yeah. But like when it showed up, you're like, wow, we have a photo. We need to save this. Like, yeah. you would never, th the only time you'd throw away a photo is if it was black. Yeah, you know, exactly. If it came back and you couldn't see anything. But otherwise, you're like, even if it's a picture of a thumb, you're like, well, that's a photo. Yeah, I, I can paid see the thing it. behind the thumb just a little bit. Yeah. yeah. I have a couple of pictures that have thumbs in it that I'm, I might paint. <laughs> <laughs> so this picture, because this is the one, obviously, of all, I mean, I've seen a lot of your paintings, but this one, because I own it, I've spent a decent amount of time looking yeah. at it. And like that darkness, also Ajax, like Ajax is yeah. like powdered bleach. Like it's yeah. so toxic. Yeah. And the fact that it's right next to this child who is faced to you. And also water next to an electric fan. Yeah. Like all of it is a lot problematic. Of <laughs> yeah. And so, a, so yeah. That's why, like, I mean, I love all of your paintings, but this one, I was like, I really want this one. <laughs> the darkness in it. Yeah. And, okay, so good. So I didn't know if you were like, oh, I just like the picture and I wanted to paint no, it, but you're fully... I yeah. I'm fully aware of story. I mm -hmm. love story. And so that's what I mean where I'm sort of running out of material because uh, from my own collection of photographs because even though there's a lot of photographs, there's not a lot of story in the photographs. There's still a lot of like smile and pose. Some of the some of the smiley ones I still like because there's something a little psychotic about the smiling. Mm -hmm. Like you can see people are trying to overcome something else and smile for the camera. Mm -hmm. um, but um but I'm it's I'm quite selective about the images that I pick. I assume so. I just wanted to hear you describe it. <laughs> and I love that it's a blink because that's what most of those photos look like. It's transportive because we mm -hmm. don't have those pictures anymore. Even even when we take pictures now, we can live photo it so that you get rid of the blink. Exactly. Like it just doesn't. Yeah, or you Lindsay. just delete it because you took 40 of them. Yeah. There's something or about. Or 50 if you're me. There's something about that <laughs> awkwardness that I think people find relaxing when they see those kinds of images. Mm -hmm. The imperfectness of them. Yeah. Like there's sure, sure there's something about the time period because a lot of it is 60s and 70s. Some of it's 80s. But it's not about 
nostalgia for the wallpaper or the pants or the kind of mm-hmm. jacket. It's more... Although, to be fair, some of the wallpaper pants and jackets yes. in your paintings are great. Well, like there's, thank you. There's some solid wallpaper, especially. Well, especially because I was starting with Magic Marker, it really was only interesting to do if there was a lot of pattern because mm-hmm. I couldn't fill up large spaces with a single color mm-hmm. very easily with Magic Marker. And then when I moved to ink, I could do like like your painting. I could, I could move through bigger spaces. I could do the stove. I could do the tub. Mm-hmm. Couldn't do that with Magic Marker. But then when I moved to watercolor I could do both which is so it's just been exciting and now oil painting I I have all options are available to me so it'll be interesting but um but yes so the nostalgia of those images is in there but it's more about the honesty of those kinds of images mm-hmm. that we don't have anymore and and there is by the way I wanted to mention one thing having been raised in a house with oil painters mm-hmm. um because I deeply care about you and Robert can We're you, using if, non-toxic chemicals. Okay, because the oil paints, I mean, some of them, like the cadmium whites and the stuff, is like, they're so toxic. Like, Robert's studio scares me a little bit because it's not as well ventilated as I would like it to be. I know, I know. So and the other problem with painting of any kind is the amount of animal parts that are in a lot of the materials yeah. that you want to use. And so... Like in the brushes? The brush, the paper, I, I was like, I, I realized that some of the paper was made with bone because they used gelatin to harden the cotton. So I, then I had what? to like research finding non-gelatin paper. Um, um, the, a friend, a friend the, of mine is an oil painter. He's clearly not a vegan. When he, um, I guess, finishes the paintings, he does a layer of rabbit skin glue. Ugh, I know. It's Why? Just because apparently because that's, that's the that, old way of doing it. He, oh, he, he no. studied with, the, like, with these masters, and that's the way they used to do it four or five hundred years ago. I, I had a yeah. friend who would make her own glue from Ugh. rabbit. It's no. so disgusting. It's so gross and so unnecessary. So, I mean, um, you can get brushes that are made with cat. Cat, yes, with squirrel, with no. mink. Um, you have to just really, you have to do your research. Paints, not all paints come in a way that's vegan, so you have to be really careful when you're looking for watercolor or oil paints. There is a subtext to your work that's also incredibly powerful that because you're so smart and aware of everything that you're doing is the post-World War II suburban Jewish experience. Right. Very Um, much a part of it, for sure. I I think, uh, well, first of all, that is my experience, so I can't avoid it. And I think we decided, especially in the show in New York, to embrace it and make it part of the conversation. I know you were very affected by that because every time I sent a picture of one of the paintings to our group text, Moby would talk about the Holocaust (laughs) because it is very much part of our story. You you can't avoid it. These are all people who lost their whole families, you know, Mm -hmm. whether or not they were in Europe at the time or they had came here before. And I think that's very much part of the texture of being Jewish. And I don't see a lot of that representation in the arts, in visual arts in general. So... It became a sort of powerful thing just to have yarmulkes present in a yeah. painting, even though it's the honest thing. There were yarmulkes present when I grew up. The men wore yarmulkes. So, yeah, we in fact, we had a whole panel of it at the show of uh, Jewish representation in visual arts. Because it's especially fascinating. Like, at Lindsay, if you get the chance to see all the paintings in one place, you realize there is this recurring subtext of like, oh, this is suburban New Jersey. Mm-hmm. 
in the 60s, 70s, 80s. But like the subtext is like, these are the survivors, mm. you know, especially the older people. And they're doing like these at times very banal suburban things. Yeah. Like passing a drink from one person to another or something. But that weighty subtext is so omnipresent and... I think because that generation of people, like, again, they're another generation back, they had less exposure to cameras. So you got, they didn't need to smile all the time. Mm -hmm. They weren't trying to filter your memory of them. They just were having their experience. So you you have dour faces. You have yeah. just people eating at a dinner party, <laughs> not smiling, not even though there's a camera. Yeah, because you don't think you think these pictures are just going to be within the family, and who cares? Or they're not thinking about you don't the think pictures. about that. They're, and now, yeah. of course, like you said earlier, then suddenly it's on the internet and living forever. Right. That wasn't on anyone's and mind. And the funny thing for me was, you know, a lot of these people are gone, and some of them I know who they are and some of them I don't even know who they are. There's one of my grandfather that I really love. It's a it's a, one of the really big ones with all the patterns. His jacket has a pattern mm-hmm. and the wallpaper has a pattern and the background has a pattern. But what I love about it is that it's probably in the late 70s, maybe mid 70s. He had Alzheimer's by the mid 80s. And... I know that about him. He doesn't know that about him when this picture is taken. And in the picture, he's reaching for something just like, I only know this because I am paying such minute detail to gesture. And some of these photos are very blurry and I'm blowing them up really large. So I'm doing like investigations on what, what these pixelated images actually are. And I realize he's reaching into his inner jacket pocket and he looks like he lost something. Mm. Mm. And I don't know if that was the beginning of his Alzheimer's. Mm. I don't know what he thought he lost, but he's in such a moment of inner private panic about something in this chaotic image. And I felt like it felt almost intrusive to have this moment with him because he didn't do it for me. And I'm now making it a performance in a way. It also made me feel like a little witchy because I knew his future. You know, I know the future of this man who's having this moment of panic. And it also feels really intimate. Like I'm having these very private personal moments with people that I knew and loved or don't even know. And I and I, and throughout the process, I have been incredibly grateful that my parents are still alive because, like, I'm doing so many of their images when they were young. It's nice to be able to turn around and, like, have them still to look at and talk mm-hmm. to. Because, yeah, yeah, so there's something about that process that is is very moving. And it's, on one hand, they're so specific, but there's the universality as well. Like, there's the existential context, you know, right. that makes them relatable. You know, so- I think because they're not posed. Those stories are human stories. So you recognize a person having a moment, and you're not... It's not about who that person is and how they're related to the painter. Lisa, um, by the way, just one last thing is... When we've been doing interviews with people, for the most part with friendships, you rarely sit down and have like a thoughtful, <laughs> com- at least I don't, like most of my conversations like with Roberts are up, about butts and peanut butter. About butts and peanut butter, <laughs> you know, like, and, and, you know, occasionally old punk rock records. And when we sat down with Robert and had the conversation with him, it was also so nice to see a side of someone that is very, you know, like the, the really thoughtful side that we all have that you actually rarely get to experience socializing. So thank you for coming over and 
talking to us about painting and creativity and thanks for asking and your hot husband and <laughs> that was really fun Lindsay, do you have any that was so well yeah i i'm taking away a lot from this conversation oh, with you Lisa, i love that because i feel like you you said something about how when you were younger how you used this any sort of creative output as a coping mechanism in a lot of ways and how now i feel like it's become this language of your life of creative output is how you relate to the world around and, you. And still a coping mechanism, yeah. for sure. So like ha being blocked or not knowing which way to go in a moment is very painful because, mm -hmm. because that, is my, that is how I move through the world. I think a lot of people never build good coping mechanisms, coping mechanisms that work or just any, you know what I mean? People become toxic in ways because they're trying to figure out some some form of soothing yeah you know and i think it's really beautiful that you managed to create a coping mechanism that has worked for you but also made so many other people's lives so much oh, that's better nice. thank it's you. such a beautiful thing and i think it's a great perspective shift for me too to think of ways that i can soothe myself and make my own life better while also creating something that could be an offering that makes someone else's day a little brighter. I love it. And Thank then you. lastly, when people want to see your work, where can they do so? Is there like an online place where people um, can... Well, SFA, S is in Sam, F is in Frank, A is in Apple, SFA Advisory still has uh, a viewing room with my show that was just up mm -hmm. in New York. And then I have a homepage that can link to all a lot of articles and images as well. But I don't have an art-specific site up as of yet. My Instagram has some of my paintings on it. Okay. Um, well, I strongly encourage, and everyone is listening to go look at your art, and especially if you can see it in person, because it is, again, not to sound like too much of a dick, but I'm sort of a, an art snob, having been raised by painters, etc. And <laughs> your paintings are very special. So thank, thank you. you for coming on and talking to us. Thank you. I am so happy that we had that conversation with Lisa. I feel actually genuinely inspired and excited by talking to her. Well, one of the things I've realized is that with a lot of friends, you rarely get the chance to sit down and have in-depth, serious conversations. Mm -hmm. You know, most of my friendships, like when I do meet up with them in person, the conversations tend to be very, it's like fun, ironic, lighthearted. And with Lisa, I've known Lisa forever, and I've never really talked to her about her history and her creative process. So apart from the fact that she was a perfect person to talk to about creativity, I'm just really happy that I got to hear my friend tell me her story. Yeah. I mean, it's so true that when you go to a dinner or go to a party, sitting down and being able to actually probe and ask those questions, you don't really get that opportunity to really focus on somebody like that. It's such a fun thing to be able to do. So Lindsay. Mm -hmm. Yes, Moby. Now, one of the reasons we wanted to talk about creativity is because you for a while have mentioned that you've at times been frustrated with your own creativity and creative process. Mm -hmm. How, not to turn this into a therapy session, but how are you, <laughs> how are you feeling these days? Well, yeah, I struggle. I struggle hard with creative blocks that are emotional and I know it because 
I, and like I said, when we were talking to Lisa, I have a lot of what's the point and there's probably something more important I should be doing like balancing a checkbook or checking my credit card debt or something, you know, that makes me even sadder. Um, so that's a, that's something that I definitely battle, but uh, how I'm feeling about it right now, I feel like I sometimes can catch these glimpses of like the fun excitement I'm making, I'm doing, but they're very fleeting for me. It's still something that I'm battling. Um, and did anything Lisa say, or were there any parts of the conversation that gave you any more insight into your own creativity? Yeah. So sometimes I have this feeling about myself that when I'm focusing on my writing or my making of whatever my thing is, sometimes it feels selfish. Like I hmm. should be doing something annoying that I've been putting off or something for someone else or something, you know, like I feel like my putting time and energy into my own art is is not a very giving thing to do. But when I taught was taught when we were talking to her, I was like, oh, she's viewing this as a form of self-care. And I do believe that any time and energy you put into yourself and your self-care and your own mental health and well-being benefits those around you immeasurably. I mean, something I was taught when I first got sober and I started going to AA, exactly what you're saying, which is that basically self-care is a form of service. Yes. Like I can't be available to anyone else. I can't be a good advocate for animals. I can't be a good activist if I'm not taking care of myself. And it's hard mm -hmm. because like that sounds selfish. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you know, and I know, and I assume people listening, we all know people who've burned out. Like I know tons yeah. of animal rights activists who burned out and as a result are no good to themselves they're no and they're no good to animals so yeah. it's like it's it really is a paradox that sometimes being selfish is a form of altruism if it yes. makes you more available to you know work on the causes that you care about Yes. And there's also part of me that has guilt around it where if the thing I'm doing doesn't directly connect to me doing something that assists in my very basic survival, it feels wrong. You know, like, I mean, mm -hmm. something that I'm not doing that is for a work thing or to help myself make money somehow or to clean a space that is dirty or something like that to take time away from that to do it feels I feel guilt I have guilt about it sometimes so it's interesting but while you're saying this and again I know podcasts are not visual but sitting behind you on the couch is bagel <laughs> and bagel you know I I see her as being arguably the smartest person on the planet mm -hmm. and her entire life is just sort of celebrating, mm -hmm. you know, just celebrating the joy of existence, celebrating yes. the fact that she has been gifted with life. Mm -hmm. For example, it's one of the reasons like I go hiking a lot and I try to only go hiking in places where there aren't humans because I love hiking and just seeing nature. And to me, it's, it's connect, not only is it good exercise, but it's also connecting what it, with whatever the source of existence might be. You know, seeing the world, and again, I don't want to, I don't want to use the word God necessarily, but it's like being reminded of the the weird joy of creation, mm -hmm. and that ideally has to, I think, inform everything that we do. 
it's one of the reasons why it's so important to put down a screen, to leave a city, to leave, you know, to like leave the, the world of humans and be reminded of the broader context of life. We look at animals like, you know, Bagel is over there just living in a state of existence. And I don't think she would ever feel selfish mm-hmm. because she's in touch with whatever the nature of existence might be. And I completely understand. Like, I know that feeling of selfishness. Like, I should do more for animals. I should do more to benefit the world. But as we were saying, like, sometimes reminding yourself of the context, reminding yourself of a bigger purpose mm-hmm. informs service in ways that we might not even be aware of. Yes. Unless that just sounds like justification or rationalization. I don't know. No. I mean, I do believe that when you are creating art or expressing yourself artistically, you are reaching parts of your brain, parts of your consciousness that are just sitting there dormant if you're watching TV or oh, wait, in a stop Zoom for a meeting. Second. What? How dare you malign television? I know you love television. I like television a lot. I know I you will love not it. I also sit love here television. casually. Well, you malign <laughs> television as homer simpson called it like friend mother secret lover (laughs) warm blanket of cheese vegan cheese Mm -hmm. um that's what they called it on my favorite show dinosaurs a warm blanket of yeah watching tv was like getting wrapped in a warm blanket of cheese so no i do love television don't get me wrong i'm just saying when you are absorbing only absorbing the world around you and never expressing your own experience of it I think that the, you get to truly exist and feel your existence when you express your perspective artistically. I, yep, I agree. <laughs> um, speaking of which, uh, do we want to make up a song? Yeah. Because you seem to like that. Oh, I sure do love it. But here's the thing is that when I was doing the tuning, the mm-hmm. open tuning, I got so um, obsessed with the open tuning that I forgot that we were even supposed to sing a song. Okay, that's fine. Do you want to play the banjo again or do you want to play the guitar? Uh, or do you want me to just bang on a chair? You know what you could do is you can actually, I'm gonna, okay, we're going to do something even more interesting. Okay. At least I think it's interesting is you're going to play, you're going to play the guitar like a percussive, like a melodic percussive instrument. Okay. We'll see how it goes. I don't really know what that means, but let's give it a try. Okay. Okay. So I've handed you the guitar and the guitar (laughs) as last time, it's an open tuning in D. So my suggestion, last time you were just sort of strumming the open tuning. Uh Uh-huh. sounds nice, doesn't it? I'm loving this so much. We're really jamming. Okay. 
So for those of you at home, Lindsay is playing the guitar with an open tuning D and she's it's sitting on her lap and she's just sort of banging on it, banging on the strings and banging on the guitar. And I'm playing the weird banjo. Should we have a... I mean, it sounds so pretty, I almost don't want to do vocals on top of it. I can't do anything other than what I'm doing. Even trying to talk right now, I'm losing it. <laughs> You're doing great. about creative stuff and bagel got scared for a second cause she picked her up too fast and bagel gets scared when someone picks her up too fast but it's not really that scared is it bagel I didn't have to make up lyrics because the music <laughs> is so nice. I feel like I'm ruining it by coming up with my ridiculous. <laughs> okay, I guess that's another episode of Moby Pod. <laughs> yep, I guess so. Um, thank you so Why much. Why am I always one of us come up with lyrics? Well, because I can't. I can come up with lyrics when I can't, when that's the only thing I'm thinking of. Okay, so I get, so, so if you're going to come up with lyrics, I would play guitar or something, and then you would come up with lyrics. Cause yeah. my, I'm just, the thought of like the things that I come up with lyrically for these made up songs, it's just so embarrassing. <laughs> no, I don't think it's embarrassing. I just, I really can't do two things at once musically. Um, other than play, I can play piano and come up with stuff, but other stuff I can't do. It's very foreign to me. Um, you want to play us out? I'm going to do the outro. Okay. You can also just like, even like with the guitar, just like one finger, just brown. Like it's, it's, it's effort. It should be like, yeah, just that. And you're going to talk us out? Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Moby Pod. Thanks to Lisa Edelstein for just being an amazing human being and sitting with us and sharing her experience with us. Um, thanks to Bagel for sleeping so gently on that pillow over there. Um, if you have any questions that you want us to answer on the pod, please email us at mobypod at moby.com. And I want to thank... Jonathan Nezvadba for editing and doing the music production on MobyPod. And thanks to Human Content for getting this podcast into your device. We'll see you in two, in weeks, two weeks. Right? Yes. Thank you so much. Fairest well. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>